All right, welcome everybody. Um, my name is Luke Schramm. Um, I am the chair of the Drugs and the Law Committee, uh, the Special Committee in the New York City Bar Association. Um, I appreciate everybody for coming. Um, I want to get to the uh, panel um, soon, so I'm just going to do some brief introductions uh, and introduce the panelists. On the end, we have Axel Burnaby, who is the assistant governor, uh, the assistant counsel to Governor Cuomo on health, um, and has been very involved um, with cannabis legislation um, in, the, uh, in, in New York State. Um, we have uh, Melissa Moore um, next to uh, Axel, who uh, is the deputy director of uh, New York chapter of Drug Policy Alliance, and is very involved in Smart Start New York. Um, a collaboration of groups um, advocating uh, against uh, cannabis prohibition. We have Doug Green, who is a uh, member of the committee, uh, the Special Committee on the Drugs and Law, and also the Legislative Director of Empire State Normal. Um, our moderator um, is Shay Gunther, who uh, produces a podcast called Marijuana Today, Business and Politics. If you haven't heard it, you should check it out. It's, it's excellent, and we'll keep you up to date on the fast-moving uh, world of cannabis uh, that we are currently in. Um, we have uh, Honorable uh, Senator Liz Krueger, um, who is a co-sponsor of the uh, MRTA, the Marijuana Regulation and Taxation Act, um, and uh, represents the is it 26, 28th, 28th um, district um, in the New York State Senate. Um, we have Christina Bucola, who is a... Uh, it's Bucola. 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 <laughs> It w I have to at least pronounce one name wrong, so I'm sorry, sorry. you're the casualty, but um, Christina is uh, uh, a cannabis attorney um, who runs her own practice and is uh, very active uh, in uh, advocacy as well as uh, the legal world of can cannabis. Uh, Anna Adeco is... Uh, works for the Legal Aid Society's Racial Justice Unit. Um, she is also working with Smart, Smart Start New York. Um, she's also practiced criminal um, defense in New York as a, a public defender through the Legal Aid Society. Um, and I want to just welcome all the panelists and thank them all for uh, taking the time to um, inform everybody here. And I will pass it off to Shay Gunther. Hello, welcome everyone. Um, I just want to just let everyone know real quick that we are actually going to be uh, putting a recording of this panel up on my podcast, Marijuana Today. Uh, so uh, if you're listening to this right now on the podcast, uh, hello. Um, so uh, my name is Shay Gunther, and I host a podcast called Marijuana Today and uh, Marijuana Today Daily. And we look at uh, the, the national uh, scene, uh, what's going on in marijuana legalization. Um, but uh, right now I live up in Maine, but I actually kind of cut my teeth as an activist uh, in Rochester, New York. So uh, back in the, the 90s, uh, kind of came up just under the, the, the cloud of the Rockefeller drug laws uh, that kind of informed uh, just my formation uh, as an activist. So uh, I'm, I'm glad that we could be talking about uh, New York State here today and all the exciting things that are going on because uh, there's a lot going on. So. Um, uh, Senator Kruger, uh, I'm going to talk to you first. Can you just talk about the MTRA and um, what are some of the biggest hurdles to getting that passed? All right. Well, so the MTRA is actually a bill to legalize cannabis for adult recreational purposes that I 
You can't hear? Oh, oh, how about that? When you press the button, it's better. Thank you. Sorry. Um, it's the legislation that the legislature has been working off of now for several years, co-sponsored by myself as the lead sponsor in the Senate and Assemblywoman Crystal Pupil Stokes in the Assembly. She's a, an Assembly member from Buffalo, New York. So it's a bill we have been drafting and amending and talking to people about all over the state, including many of the panelists here tonight, um, to fine-tune to um, address the um, ending of criminalization of personal use cannabis in New York State, allow for um, a legalized, regulated, and taxed model of, of marijuana, um, ensuring that we deal with the criminal justice pieces and the restorative justice issues within marijuana, making sure we are able to seal or expunge the records of people who have been caught up in the criminal justice system um, for decades now, um, hopefully creating a model where you can provide licensing for small businesses at every level of the cannabis business to start up and thrive in all communities with a priority on investment and reinvestment in the communities of color where the most harm has been done by our wrong prohibitive prohibition um, laws around cannabis. So we're about to introduce a new version of the bill, probably next week, which will be a significant expansion on what people have seen up until now. And that is because during the course of the end of 2018 and the beginning of 2019, um, the Assembly and the Senate spent an extraordinary amount of time attempting to coordinate and negotiate with the governor's office, and in fact with Axel, who's here, is one of the, the governor's people, um, to do a more expansive vision of what we could do in New York State, including addressing the regulatory needs of hemp and CBD um, non-THC related products um, here in in New York State, and also an expansion of our medical marijuana program. So while Axel and I may not be in agreement about what Crystal and I are going to put out, hopefully again by next week, um, that's just more room for negotiation between the different floors in the legislature. Um, but I think it will be a much broader bill covering more territory um, than you saw from the legislature up till now. And we are remaining cautiously optimistic that there is still a possibility that before we leave session at the end of June, we might be able to have a three-way negotiated agreement on a variation of the bill that Crystal and I hope to make available to everyone to start reviewing by next week. I also just want to quickly um, shout out State Senator Franz Leichter, who's here in the audience. Franz is one of the great liberals, state senators of New York State recent history. And he reminded me when he came in tonight, he's right here in the second row in the middle, oh my um, that he had written a cannabis legalization bill in 1971. Um, so just pointing out how long some people have been working on this issue. Um, and 
others of you might know Franz for many important liberal causes that he took up throughout his career. And he said to me tonight, wow, you, you lasted till you finally got to take over. So yes, I did. <laughs> so I'm delighted to have Franz here, and he is truly a mentor and a model for us all. I'll stop now. <laughs> Awesome. Um, on the note, uh, uh, Axel, can you talk about what uh, New York needs to do to implement adult use? Like, what what needs to happen for for that to actually happen? Uh, you mean you mean sort of practical? What can we do? Yeah, to ensure a smooth transition. Yeah. What 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 needs to what needs to happen there? Yeah. So um, I think that's a very good question, and I think a lot of states are struggling with exactly how to roll things out. And uh, in thinking on how to answer this question. Uh, I come back a little bit to the, the proposal we put out in the budget in January, and one of the things we've been told, we spent a lot of time speaking with other states and getting uh, feedback from them on lessons learned and, and, and recommendations for us, and one of the things they did say is you want to have uh, a well-staffed uh, independent office or uh, at least a, a separate office from some of the existing uh, agencies. So a lot of the a lot of different agencies are involved. Agriculture and markets regulates a lot of the grows and health and uh, commerce, uh, the state liquor authority. And so they did. They they really uh, spoke a lot about uniting all the, uh, the the talent and all the the expertise in one place. And that's what we propose doing in the Office of Cannabis Management. And just as an example, right, if you look at the three segments that um, Senator Kruger was identifying, you have the medical program, you have the uh, adult use program, and then you have the hemp cannabis or the hemp extract program. In all three situations, you have extractors that are, in fact, extracting cannabinoids from the cannabis flower. And you want to do that to a certain standard. We propose doing it to a, a variant of the GMP, the Good Manufacturing Practices Standard. That's a, that's a particular expertise, inspecting GMP facilities, making sure they're up to snuff and that they, 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 they take care of any risks. That's something that, that takes expertise, and nobody in state government necessarily has it, and you're going to be inspecting three separate segments of the market, so it makes sense to have them all in the same office and have a lot of efficiencies that way. So properly staffing that uh, office and making sure you have the right office, uh, the right numbers of inspectors and, and uh, educators, but also the culture of the office. So one thing we spent a lot of time focusing on is you, you, you probably want a CMO, a chief medical officer, but you probably want a CE, uh, CEO, a chief equity officer, not your traditional executive officer, because you're talking about a lot of the, a lot of the programs we agree with, with, the, um, with the legislature that it be a um, uh, social equity programs, that we have loans, that we have uh, ways of, of getting to disproportionately impacted communities, and that the culture of the agency is really going to dictate the ability to do the right outreach and to, and to build the right programs. So I think, I think the right culture is a huge component of it. So that's, that's, the, that's the first point, is, is the office. The second thing is related, it's community participation. So another thing we, we learned a lot from Colorado is that they relied really heavily on the community, the industry, the growers, the experts, because this is a brand new, a brand new industry. And so what we did is we proposed in, in our bill um, an advisory board, which would be uh, made up of community, uh, community participants. It would be broken up into various segments of so public health, licensing, uh, agriculture, and you would really recruit the right folks there. And that would be where you would draw up a lot of the regulations and a lot of the parameters, total number of licenses, types of products that would be sold. 
it, the more you the more you invest the uh, the community in that process, the better the better the product and uh, you're going to get. So I think that's a really key key thing uh, to to consider when you're when you're rolling out legislation, or when you're rolling out a new program. And the third thing I'll mention is, and uh, you know, I, I come from a public health background, but it's it's to keep our mission public health focused. So we always talk about uh, the three legs to the stool in in rolling out in rolling out uh, the the cannabis industry and we talk about economic development, we talk about social equity, and we talk about public health. But in a way, public health really should be an overarching theme that applies as well to, to the other two sectors. So for example, when it comes to social equity, you do want to keep uh, uh, equity health or health equity in mind. So you want to make sure that when you set up dispensaries that you're mindful of where they're set up, that they're not overly concentrated in particular communities, that folks that may be you know, consuming large amounts and that may be developing cannabis use disorder are treated properly, are steered towards behavioral health specialists. So you want to just always have that public health messaging and, and focus when you're setting up a new industry because this is a substance that can, right? It's a medicine. It's, a, it's, it's got a lot of incredible properties which can be uh, used for good and can also be, you know, lead folks down uh, the wrong avenue. So keeping that public health message is important. And, and we also, you know, on the last thing I'll say on this uh, is, uh, you know, we encourage folks that are in the industry, so people that are submitting applications or thinking of submitting applications, be they large medical providers or small community groups or social equity participants, to really keep that message in mind, to, to come to us when they come to the regulator talking a language of public health and being mindful that they're selling a product that could be abused. And so really, you know, we want to encourage that kind of corporate social responsibility and have partners that, that work with the state to, 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 to disseminate that message and to be mindful of the folks that are going to be learning about cannabis as we embark on this new journey. Awesome. Um, uh, Christina, I, you work a lot with uh, hopeful entrepreneurs, uh, people looking to get in the industry. Um, what, uh, actually just talked about some things that uh, they should be thinking about when they're coming to the application uh, stage. What are some other things that they should be thinking about? Um, I don't think it's ever too early for entrepreneurs to start planning. Um, I don't necessarily think that the way to start planning is to throw money at courses that promise you to get a leg up in industries that don't even yet have programs. So when, when you read something, how, learn how to get ahead in New York or New Jersey, be very, very cautious about that. Um, but what I'm talking about is best industry practices. There's nothing preventing entrepreneurs from looking across different states that already have implemented <clears throat> their own cannabis legalization programs at the adult use level to see what's coming up there um, and what the parameters are. But also, one of the most important things that entrepreneurs can do in this space is get active, period. Um, I, I'm not like most lawyers. I don't come from, or that are in cannabis. I didn't come from a criminal de de defense background. I'm a hardcore uh, transactional attorney. I was in mergers and acquisitions, fund formation, and private equity. Then I was in-house and the general counsel of an international tech company and then uh, general counsel of High Times. And then I was a partner in a grow. So I, I wasn't a law firm lawyer who came to this, right? And I have my own practice for a very particular purpose to advocate for the industry that I want to see. So what I want to see is one that is equitable, that is diverse, that has opportunities to a whole host of people to, that has reinvestment into the communities that were most harmed. Um, 
I'm, I work as part of the Start Smart Coalition here in New York, and there was a coalition member who said it so brilliantly, and I'm going to totally butcher her words and try to put it in a more corporate uh, format, but basically what she said was, the communities that have been most harmed have already put in their founders' equity into this industry. They've already laid that groundwork. And to not honor that is to really have a problem implementing anything. And we should keep that really first and foremost. So I, I love what Axel is saying about this public health perspective, but really understanding what we have done for the last 80 plus years and beyond that and making amends for that is something that is truly important. That also puts me in a very awkward position um, with clients because not all clients necessarily want to advocate for um, an inclusive industry, and it's led me to turn down work and to actually be rejected uh, for my services because of that. And that's okay. That's a choice I made. Um, but I think everyone in this room, if they want to see a real cannabis industry, then you need to get out there and advocate for it, if you're an entrepreneur newer or, or not. Um, I know some of the lawyers who are in this room might have their hands somewhat bound because they work for firms and may not be able to do that. Um, but to the extent that you can, Every little bit makes a difference. Get educated, get out there, and, and get talking. So that's what I um, would advocate for everyone to how they get into the business. Have you been able to educate any of those? Uh, like, have you been able to turn any potential clients yeah. to actually, you know, get them to understand why, why social equity and justice is something that should absolutely. Be um, so I'm, I'm really fortunate in that I get to kind of wiggle my way into developing companies as their general counsel, and so I have a holistic view of their business, and I'm constantly um, reminding everyone that what you do matters, your positioning matters, and making sure that your cannabis is 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 comes from a place of equity and comes from a place of fairness is becoming much, much more important. I mean, over the last 18 months, we have seen a huge move towards this talk about equity. That wasn't part of the conversation necessarily out West, but we have done a huge, we've done an incredible job of, not me personally, but the community has done a wonderful job of reorienting the conversation towards, no, this first, this before economics, this before the enriching the other people who are, are are already wealthy and can enter this space with unlimited sources of capital. So yes, I have been able to change that, not only through my work with Start Smart, but on the personal level where I'm working with clients one-on-one. -on -one. Yeah, it's interesting because we are definitely a, we're a movement based off of baby steps and taking whatever we can get. And it seems like the conversation has kind of changed over the past year, a couple of years where we're not really willing to just take whatever. Um, um, uh, and I was wondering, um, is anyone watching what Massachusetts is doing? Um, just as far as their social justice uh, equity programs? Um, um, yeah. Um, so to be completely candid, I have only practiced in New York. And so a lot of okay. my um, knowledge is based on how criminalization has been impacted here. Okay, uh, so can anyone inside, has anyone looked at what, what other states are doing for social justice and you know, what, what, could, what is New York looking to, to kind of copy? Sure, I think this is, um, this is an opportunity less for New York to, to copy, but rather to observe what's happening and anticipate and get ahead of things that could potentially be roadblocks or barriers for people if we're really intentional about creating a social equity program and really grounding legalization in New York in racial and economic justice and doing so in such a way that, that really does center the people who have been 
at the center of the harm that's taken place. And so what that looks like is, you know, looking at places like California and Massachusetts where, you know, different from the initial states to legalize, they actually did have, have programs where they're, they had um, provisional or priority licensing for people who were social equity applicants. But unfortunately, just having a piece of paper, having a license is not enough, right? Like we know that there are significant barriers to entrepreneurs of color accessing capital, no matter what industry you're in, let alone if you're in an industry that's currently banned at the federal level. And so what is it, what is it going to take in New York? And I think this is particularly important given that we are the financial heart of the country. How do we crack the nut of actually figuring out how to get access to capital for people who are traditionally systematically blocked from being able to access it. And so that goes back to like the incubator programs, that goes back to the zero and low interest loans that we have to have at the forefront of when we're setting up the industry here in New York, because it's not enough to do it after the fact, right? We, we can anticipate already that this is going to be an issue. There's, you know, we, we operate within the broader frame of uh, market capitalism, right? And so there are ways in which we can learn these really important lessons and get ahead of that in New York in a way that actually makes our industry far more robust, far more comprehensive, and much more effective all across the board. Awesome. Um, uh, and so um, returning to New York City, because that's where we hear, that's, that's where we practice, uh, what, um, what is the current state of cannabis enforcement in New York City? What, what laws are actually being enforced? So New York City, we have a few of our um, prosecutor offices that have said that they're going to decline to prosecute marijuana. Um, in practice, what that actually looks like, because prosecutors are not the people stopping people in the streets, it's police officers, and police officers always have discretion to stop and arrest people. So even if the prosecutor's office, after they're arrested and put through the system, and in New York City, that's roughly about 24 to 48 hours of your life taken from you for having a little bit of weed, um, you might have your case declined to prosecute, which means you can go home after you spent 24 to 48 hours in the system, right? What we're not accounting for is all the kids and young people who are stopped in communities of color. So if you're in Brownsville or you're in East New York where the police interact with your community almost more like a, um, an occupying force, you're being stopped consistently. And even if they're not putting you through the system, they are harassing young people. Um, and so when it comes to actual marijuana arrests that um, get prosecuted by the DA's office, that's still happening in New York City, even in Manhattan and Brooklyn, where both of the DA's have said that they're declining to prosecute most cases, um, the operative word being most cases, they're still prosecuting some, and they have different reasons for doing so. And so... The reason why marijuana legalization has to occur in the state is that New York City is still one of the best places to be stopped for marijuana. In other parts of New York, people are sitting in jail right now, as we're speaking, for marijuana possession. Not for selling, like, you know, big-time drug mover amounts. We're talking about small amounts of marijuana has people sitting in jail as we're sitting here talking about the possibility of legalization. And it's only happening to communities of color. And so one of the things that I have noticed, especially while doing this work to galvanize people to really understand that this issue is not just about um, the access to marijuana, you know, like smoke up, whatever. It's actually about a racial justice issue is because for many people in New York State, marijuana is essentially legal for them. They have delivery, they have 
banned. <laughs> they have all sorts of mechanisms to access it, and it's not causing the type of crippling harm to their communities that it's doing to black and brown communities across the state. And so legalization is not just for us to think about having access, it's also for us to think about creating space to stop the harm because it's happening right now. We're not talking about this in some type of past tense. When we talk about rectifying harms that have occurred, they're still happening. And so we need to stop that process. Sorry, just want to add how it multiplies on itself even if you think you're unofficially decriminalizing. Um, so technically, we've had decriminalization of small quantities of marijuana for decades. Mm -hmm. And yet the stories that were just told is exactly what continues to happen despite everybody continuing to say, well, we don't really need to regulate and tax and set up a, a model for a legalized industry. Well, the punchline is yes, because if you decriminalize, or if you think you're doing another step to decriminalizing, you're continuing the same variations on the stories, and you still have a criminal market out there running the show, which in, in my opinion is something that it's critical for New York State to stop having. But then it layers on itself for issues, again, for black and brown communities. So I was having a discussion with some of my colleagues about the abuses of suspending licenses for failure to pay fines on all kinds of things. And it actually hit as a New York Times story today, I don't know if people had a chance to look at it, talking about people being people not knowing their driver's licenses were suspended because they were suspended for having a buildup of fines that they probably couldn't afford to pay in poor communities or might not have even known they owed. So then they get stopped. Then they go and do a cross-check on the record if there's something else, perhaps on a minor infringement of a, on a cannabis uh, situation. So that gets layered on. And then they're in the police headquarters, headquarters, the precinct, um, getting fingerprinted and getting booked on something when really the issue is why do we have such stupid policies on suspending people's driver's licenses for parking tickets that they haven't paid. And we're also, we're talking tens of thousands of people. I think the number in the time story today was, I don't want to get it wrong because I feel like it was over 100,000 people where, the, where their driver's license gets suspended per year, not for bad driving or other things that you would think, oh, well, they should have their license suspended, but for fines. And so this continues to multiply um, of having bad criminal justice policy, apparently bad DMV policy, um, and bad cannabis policy. And it always seems to be the exact same sub-universe of people in our state who get caught up in it. And it translates into multiplier effects on individuals and on communities. So I just thought I would throw in the newest spin on that based on conversations with my colleagues about something else we need to work on. Can you, can you fix that for us? Actually, we have a bill. Um, <laughs> Senator Kennedy has introduced it. I think Assemblywoman Pamela Hunter. Um, and maybe we can't move that this year. Yes. All right, awesome. 
Um, Doug, I was wondering if you could talk about some specific things uh, that New York could be doing better in implementing adult use over other states. We have, uh, was it nine states now where adult use is legal? Ten. Ten we go, we ten have. plus D.C., I think. So there are some, there are some examples. Like, what, what, what should New York do there? Uh, that's a really, really broad question. You got to. You gotta give me a specific area. Um, so let's see. Um, um, rolling out adult use sales dispensaries. What can what can we do do there to get it right? Rolling out adult use sales. Well, I think one of the first things that would need to happen, which a number of states have already done, um, and of course this actually ties into one of the most critical pieces of how New York does this is the relationship of the ROs to the adult use program. Um, I think it makes sense for the ROs to start selling to adults over 21 as soon as possible after we enact this. I think there would need to be a, a transition period. Uh, if we look at what, what happened in Massachusetts, uh, the demand was so great, even though the limit was an ounce, they had to initially limit purchases to a half ounce. So I would imagine it would take the RO some time to ramp up production in terms of doing that. But I think, you know, I think one of the things we have to realize, a key thing, is that the unlicensed market, which is the terminology I like to use, is so developed in New York, as people have been talking about. We have delivery services. We have probably the most sophisticated market in the world right now. And the challenge is going to be how do we how do we transition to a, a legal regulated market? And I think that really goes to the fact that we are going to need incredible innovation and we're going to need relatively liberal uh, policies in terms of how the program is structured. You know, we were talking about social equity before, and I remember saying to Christina a couple of months ago, Christina, how do we do this? Social equity, it's, it's so hard. No one's gotten it right yet. If you look at places like Oakland, there are political considerations and people weren't necessar necessarily benefiting from the programs. And she said, we have to do it. And of course, we have to do it. But it hasn't been until recently. There's, um, there's actually a guy at uh, Moritz in Ohio who has developed a metric system for measuring the effectiveness of different types of social equity programs, which I think is, is brilliant. And he's actually finishing up a report on LA's social equity program, which the Minority Cannabis Business Association is going to be coming out with any day. What are the, what are the bullet points? Uh, what are the hallmarks of a good social equity program? What do you got to have? I mean, I think you have to have a lot of things. You have to have an incubator. You have to have z low or zero interest loans. You need to have cooperatives micro-licensing. You need to have buy-in from non-profits and for-profit um, industries to, to work with the social equity program because, you know, we're not going to get all the funding we need from the state. Um, I think that's, that's clear. We're not going to get a massive amount of funding for social equity. So we're going to have to be really innovative how we leverage those funds. If I can just hop in here, one, one thing that we actually also really want to see is, um, as, as Doug mentioned, we have, one of, we have the most vibrant cannabis market in the entire world. We consume more cannabis than any other place on the planet, whether it is legal or illicit, we consume. And I think the second runner-up is Karachi, Pakistan, and they are far behind us. We outsmoke them um, quite a bit. 
Um, in any event, so we have this really robust economy already, and we have people who are operating in that economy who are putting food on their tables, who are members of their communities, who are parents, and are, are involved in very important ways in people's lives and their community. How do we take them and assure that they have a place to also operate? What does that look like? I have no idea, but I am always open to to suggestions of how, because part of that is going to be their capital sources aren't going to come from banks, right, because we have a huge banking problem in cannabis, and they might not even be from low or zero interest loans. It may be that they are self-financed. So how do we how do we allow them the capacity to transition into the, uh, um, the legal market with their toolkit as it is right now. And so that is, I think, one of the more interesting challenges that New York is going to have to work on um, in this space. Could I, could I just follow up, Shay? So one of the, the interesting things I've been talking about is Oklahoma, right? Oklahoma has a medical program. They don't have a social equity program, but you know what they do have? They have really low barriers to entry. They don't have license caps. They have low licensing fees. And I think that's a key element, too, along with the social equity piece, is not creating barriers to entry. Totally agree with you, but I also think that, I mean, if, if to have too much of a libertarian view, the market can't be allowed to set itself, right? Agreed. Because if the Agreed. market sets itself, we have no social equity. But I want to go back to why, I th while I agree that Crystal and my efforts in this field for so long have been to try to make sure that we recognize exactly that and that if New York is going to set up a system that it does have social justice and social equity but also can put out of business the illegal market, we need to get our arms around how we're going to make sure that people can transition from what may be a very successful lucrative career for themselves in an illegal market and move them into a legal market and allow them to do that. Because otherwise, you have what you see in some states that have legalized, which are competing markets. So I'm not really excited about our creating a legal market for marijuana where you can go into the dispensary and buy the product, but you can also go behind the dispensary and have some guy going, hey, I'm selling it cheaper, and yeah, you won't really know what it is or who I am or whether I'm going to have a gun in my pocket and bop you over the head if we get into a fight, but it's cheaper behind the building. I don't want us to have that situation in New York. So there are really important lessons to be learned from other states, both the mistakes and the successes of other states. So for me, I know and in discussions with the governor's shop over the year to make sure we don't overprice legal cannabis so that we actually are competing badly with the illegal market. We want people to come into the system, to come out from the shadows, to participate in a legal economic activity, um, which means both ensuring that there aren't barriers to their participating, but that also we aren't setting up a overly expensive system, which has been part of the problem also on our medical marijuana side in New York. When patients can't afford medical marijuana, even though they have been prescribed it by a participating doctor, that's a real problem for us, too. Can I jump oh. in a second on that last point? Oh, I wanted to add in. Oh, sorry. Oh, no, please, by all means. <laughs> I want to go back to tax. 
I do want to just add, when we're talking about social equity, we also have to think about what are the reasons why people enter the illicit market? And so how are we ensuring that those communities are getting um, something back so that they can have the infrastructures to start to build out their own um, economies within their communities. And so social equity is not just thinking about people who want to go into marijuana, but also those communities that were impacted by the drug war, being able to develop other forms of businesses and other things that they need that have been starved out of their communities historically. And so that framework needs to still be in our mindset when we're talking about it. And New York is one of the few places that's actually including that in the work that we're doing around legalization. Uh, okay. So just uh, actually jumping off that last point, I think the, the reinvestment piece is an important one, and that's contingent on being able to collect tax revenue. So one of the places where we may have a little bit of disagreement um, uh, with, the, with, with uh, my honorable colleague is, is on the rate of taxation. We spend a lot of time looking at this, and we think you have to separate the earlier question that Christina made, which is absolutely true. There are people that are currently making a livelihood in a sector and you don't want to do the same thing that you did to the numbers game when you got an informal sector and you reduce capital there uh, and, you, and you destroy entire sort of informal economies. So you have to look to do that, encourage a value proposition to transition people, give them access, give them capital, give them a pathway to get into the market. So completely agree with you there. I think we have to be careful on tax because this is an incredibly economical or cheap uh, product to make, right? The, the cost of, of manufacturing a gram is now hovering at about a dollar and is, is scheduled to drop below that. And you don't want a $3 gram at retail. You want something a little higher because from a public health standpoint, you don't want really cheap weed. So, <clears throat> no, you don't, actually. So, well, I'll disagree with you on that. Uh, you know, you have, you, you have to maintain this. It's already the drug which has the lowest cost per stoned hour. And you have people that are taking, the, the folks, that are, the 10% that are using it uh, on a daily or near daily basis are using 1.6 grams a day, and that's a fair amount. People may be self-medicating, there may be very good reasons, and it doesn't mean that anybody who's taking that amount has a problem. But we definitely want to maintain a certain control over the price like we do with alcohol and like we do with other, uh, with other commodities. So, so that being said, right, so there's a big margin to this product, and the tax rates are not that big an impact, right? The, the, the illegal price right now in the city approximately is estimated being $12, $13 a gram. So if you think about a dollar a gram for production and a retail price of $12 or $13 a gram, then you have a lot of margin there. And, and the idea that the state wouldn't be able to collect that tax revenue and reinvest it for the purposes that we'd like to reinvest it for, I think we have to be careful. And if you look at Washington State, which has a 53% tax rate, and now has about 75% of its market in the, legal, in the legal market and outside of the gray market. They sort of belie this idea that you need to have a rock-bottom tax rate. And I, I just think, I think people have to look at it more carefully. It's something that we, we jump, you know, people look at California and say, it's the tax rate. That's why they can't get online. No, it's not the tax rate. It's because they have since 1996, and they did it right, and they're the pioneers, and our hats are off to them, and we're standing on their shoulders. But they have legal, uh, illegal dispensaries that are brick and mortar that look exactly like a legal dispensary. You can't tell the difference that are not paying, not only not paying taxes, but aren't testing their products or, you know, producing under, under uh, uh, regulation. So, 
So that's probably a bigger problem to getting, to getting uh, the informal market into the formal market, bigger than the taxation issue. So just I know you're drafting your, your new iteration now, so I would suggest spending some time looking at that and making sure we don't come in with a race to the bottom on taxation. It's always easier to lower taxes. And let's keep in mind the size of the margins in this industry, a dollar to $13 or whatever numbers you want to play with, very large margins, and the state should be able to tax and reinvest We're that. not really in disagreement, and so when I was talking about pricing, it's not just the tax issue, it's the actual pricing of the product. So I think that we can learn the lessons of states that worked well and learn the lessons of states who haven't, sorry, who haven't worked as well. And I also just want to self-correct when I was referencing the driving license suspensions in New York State. The New York Times article was that in 2016, New York State suspended 679,000 licenses for failure to pay tickets that were not related to bad driving. So, Is that one year, did you say? That was, yes, sir, wow. one year. And I just want to underscore, even with the, the shift in the operations order uh, from the NYPD to no longer, hypothetically, no longer arresting people, although as we heard from Anne, that's still very much the case um, for certain targeted populations. Even for people who are benefiting from that shift in the operations order to receiving a summons instead of actually being arrested in that moment, if somebody doesn't show up for their court date, they, are, they have an open warrant because of that summons. And so it's, it, they might be not going through the front door of the precinct, but they're brought in the back door of the court, right? And so that's part of our work within the Start Smart Coalition to make sure that not only are we, uh, are we removing this as a tool for interaction with communities, but we're making sure that people are well aware that just because there's um, kind of a, a small pivot around that, which is important when we look at you know, the number of arrests in New York City dropping by 97% compared to 2010, that's huge. And yet we still have a ways to go, right? We know that the disparities still aren't what they need to be, and we know that people are still having serious legal consequences in their life because this is still part of the, legal, the criminal legal system, right? There is a way in which as we move into a regulated market where that becomes a civil offense or a civil violation, which cannot then turn into an open criminal warrant for somebody. And that's really important for us to think about. Um, along those lines, how do we, how do we avoid uh, waging drug war 2.0? You know, once marijuana is legal, how do we enforce drug laws? How do we make sure that people are, you know, doing all the things that they're supposed to do and not, you know, restart this? I think there's a few things that we should be thinking about because um, a lot of times when we think about the drug war, we forget about the actors in the system who have the actual influence and power to be able to enforce that. And so one of the big actors that oftentimes no one checks and doesn't have that much oversight is the NYPD. Um, the way the NYPD behaves in communities, we have to address that. We have to also stop investing in criminalization in general. Like we've seen that the drug war did not reap any benefits, we still have high uses of marijuana, we still have uses of any other type of illicit drug, and yet we're still consistently going back to the same communities and consistently incarcerating people and draining resources from those communities. So when you incarcerate somebody, especially pre-trial incarceration, we're also taking money from families within those communities because it's not just the person who's sitting on Rikers or whatever jail that they're sitting in, they come from a family, they come from a community, and people are trying to get money together to get them out, right? And so that also increases the likelihood of um, 
issues, ripple effect issues. So it starts to play out in housing. We start to see more people who are losing their housing because oftentimes families are putting up money to get members of their family out of jail or friends out of jail. Or you start to see that even when people lose public benefits. So if someone already is getting benefits, if they miss three or four days of work and they're currently receiving some type of benefit from the state, they can be dropped off of those rosters. And so you see a whole decline in a lot of communities' lives. And so when we're thinking about the war on drugs, we also should think about how are we treating poor New Yorkers because the war on drugs is essentially criminalizing black and brown poor people. And so we have to think about de-investing in certain systems. We should be pulling money away from NYPD. We should be thinking about whether it makes sense for us to be building jails. We should be thinking about what we value as a community, as a society that can actually create safety for us that's not relying on criminalization because as we've seen with the war on drugs, that is going to fail consistently. Yeah, and just to build on that, we, we have cold hard facts about what the economic toll of marijuana prohibition has been particularly in New York City. The comptroller did a report that they released in December where they actually mapped the data of the concentration of marijuana arrests and economic indicators in the city. And what they found was, lo and behold, seven out of the 10 neighborhoods that had the highest marijuana arrest rate also had the lowest economic indicators in the city. And that's not to say that that's a causal factor, but clearly it exacerbates structural inequities and structural racism that's already impacting those communities very clearly. So in the way that that we actually have the very clear roadmap around the damage that's been caused by prohibition, we have to be very clear in following that roadmap in terms of where we reinvest the dollars that are going to be coming in uh, from an actual regulated marketplace and be very clear and very intentional about how we're setting up those systems and frameworks. And you've been living in Maine, sorry, you've been living in Maine, so maybe you don't know that actually in the budget this year in New York State, um, we had fairly radical um, criminal reform um, so that we have now um, set up a system where the vast majority of people will not be sitting in our jails with because they can't afford bail. We will have the kind of discovery that has been taking place around the country so that defense lawyers can, in fact, find out the details on behalf of their clients quickly. We will increase speedy trials. Um, and so we have been moving in a direction of trying to modernize, reform our criminal justice system, hopefully be arresting far fewer people, le avoiding having them trapped even in our local jails, risking the loss of their jobs and their families, even if perhaps they would have been found innocent if they ever get to their court proceeding. Um, and even though the district attorneys have not agreed necessarily with the legislature and the governor on what we did, um, they'll, they'll be far less pleading to a lower charge and ending up going to jail because you didn't think you had the wherewithal to prove that you weren't guilty in the first place. And I think that's perhaps one of the most important things for New York, that we won't actually be sending people to jail because they're poor. 
and they don't have any other alternative. So I really do think we're making some big steps in the right direction here. Yeah, and I think the remaining piece of that huge criminal justice reform effort that happened in the budget is is the marijuana piece, right? Like we've, we've talked about this really extensively that not only is legalization, legalization and regulation obviously a, a market and social equity question, but it's also a criminal justice reform question. When we're in a position where there have been 800,000 arrests for low-level marijuana possession in the last 20 years alone, um, that's a huge area in which you know, the, the bill that Senator Kruger sponsors is very clear about making this a criminal justice reform issue because there would then be a process established to either seal or vacate or expunge prior marijuana arrests and re-sentence or reclassify those offenses for people who are still in the system for whatever reason. And when we think about what that means in terms of people then being able to access, you know, loans for higher education, housing, employment, all of the things that right now are negatively impacted by that criminal justice history, being able to instead have the resources behind being able to invest in people and communities to build them up instead of tearing them down. I think when we're talking about, you know, the, you know, I know we'll get to this, the, the urgency to pass marijuana reform this legislative session, it's really a huge criminal justice reform issue as well that is outstanding for the legislature. So um, I think Melissa touched on this a little bit, but I think one way to approach this is to look at this as how do you find businesses, right? You, you engage in civil fines and things like that that do not involve criminalization as a way to look at some of the, you know, some of the um, artifacts of what will remain because I don't think any I don't think anyone is going to say we're immediately going to get rid of the unlicensed market overnight it's going to persist we have to do it in a in a non-criminal way um, in terms of moving forward but I wanted to bring up what I think is my and our members probably biggest concern about drug war 2.0 which is the question of personal cultivation or home grow um, you know, there are communities all over the city, especially in the outer boroughs, where people have more space, in Crown Heights, in South Ozone Park, where I've been, and people are, people have a couple of plants. And I think that if we don't include that in the bill, which I hope will be in the A-print. <laughs> um, yes, we've put Home Grow back into our bill. Yay. <laughs> Um, that, that really is the most important issue to, to our members, is home grow and making sure that stays in there. And I, I just see that as, one, an opportunity for recriminalization of communities. And in terms of a social equity piece, I mean, how can we talk about social equity if communities of color can't afford access to cannabis? Because we know that prices initially in states that have legalized have been, have been high. They drop over time. but Initially, prices are kind of high, so how, how is that equity? One other, if I can, one other thing that is really important, a really important piece, particularly in a city like New York, is social consumption. Mm -hmm. Because we are all, for the most part, vertically stacked, right? So how are we going to implement legislation that says, hey, guess what? 
you can smoke, you can consume, but only if you have a detached home with enough perimeter space. And you can, or with home grow, if you, in, in, that, in that home, you can have a separate space in which to grow your plants, right? So you, there are concerns around the way people live, whether that gives them access to grow, but also to consume. So making sure that there are safe spaces for all different types of people to consume, I think is going to be critical for the success of this program. Are there are there any unique challenges to legalizing in New York City? Because it's, I mean, you, t you talked a little bit about you know the fact that there's not a lot of space. People are like, are there any other are there any other Big Apple? I guess unique challenges. Yeah, I mean, I would say when we're talking about the the retail sites um, and just thinking through what are the different entry points into the industry potentially for folks. Um, not only concentrating the licenses or the business opportunities within large retail operations, but also having a, a real multiplicity of entry points so that people who don't necessarily have the capital together to put a lease on a place on Fifth Avenue um, or, you know, even like downtown or in Brooklyn, like when we think about what it is to to be able to avail yourself of a rental, you know, a, a retail space in New York City, it's, I mean, it's damn near impossible, right? So when we're thinking about, especially given the, the aspects of, uh, of federal prohibition and not being able to access the normal sort of business loans that people might have, um, but I'm going to put a pin in that because we'll come back to it, um, you know, that, that's a huge factor, right, is making sure that there are delivery licenses, that there are you know, even things like um, like a catering license, like things that are really responsive to the types of businesses that people already have operational within this space so that there are, you know, again, going back to how do we create opportunities for people to bridge over who already have the expertise, who already have a customer base, who already know very much what they're doing to be able to come over. But then I think also thinking through, you know, the, the really vibrant co-op scene that we have in New York City and the organizing that's happening there and also the both like the, the training and the activism and the the building of within that community that can translate into the cannabis sector but also what that can mean in terms of access to financing you know also some of the community development financial institutions that operate in New York state which specifically serve underbanked and underrepresented communities are co-ops. And so when we're looking at what it means for, for some of those entities to be able to provide banking and lending services to some of their co-op partners or to folks from directly impacted communities, I think that's a huge opportunity for somewhere like New York City, where we really do have these structures in a way that doesn't exist a lot of other places in the country. Um, I, I also wanted to say that um, one of the, and this is why we love doing this, because there's always new things happening. Um, I believe Massachusetts, um, what is it, Melissa? Social delivery, the, the delivery licenses are going to be cabin to social equity applicants for two years, I think? I don't know the time frame, but... I think it's like two years where only social equity applicants will be able to get the delivery licenses or permits. Yeah, and they will be able to contract with uh, multiple dispensaries. So uh, yeah, so that it's a, it's a way to get um, get uh, equity members into the, into the uh, program. Um, can we uh, pivot a little bit to talk about protecting the medical program in the face of adult use? Um, in a lot of states where we've seen the transition from medical to adult use, uh, patients have suffered when adult uses come online, you know, uh, dispensaries move their products over from the medical side to the adult side. What are some things that we need to do to protect medical users as adult use comes online? 
<laughs> so I think this is something that Axel and the legislature had tried to work on together to make sure that um, we are not killing our medical program at the same time as we are creating a recre recreational and adult use program. And the truth is that, especially when you tie in expansion of the hemp CBD world, you can, we believe if you get rid of the vertical integration model that the state started its medical program under, um, you can have all kinds of new innovative ways to allow entities to have multiple licenses, different kinds of license coordinate together. Um, again, I'm very hesitant to say we agreed upon X because we ultimately didn't have a document that we could show people, Axel. So when we get ours written, I'm, I'm hoping that you will immediately take a look at that because that's something that I really do want to get right. Um, what, we, what we are doing in the bill is we are working off of the language of the bill that Senator Savino and Assemblymember Gottfried have been working on so that we are not trying to go down multiple roads on the medical side as a legislative body. So ours will be um, relatively exactly parallel to theirs. And I don't know if anybody else on this panel has taken, look at, taken a look at that bill yet. So maybe you could speak to that. Doug's raising his hand. Yeah, I, 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 did, I did look at it, um, and there's, there's a lot of things I like. There are some things I think we're uh, a little bit concerned about. Mm -hmm. uh, we like the, fla the fact, of course, that finally flour will be permitted and that uh, smoking will be a certified use. Um, one of the things I think we were looking for in there that we didn't see is reciprocity. New York doesn't have reciprocity, and uh, I was hoping to see that in there. Um, I think what that means I apologize so reciprocity is when someone who is lives in another jurisdiction who is visiting can have access to medical cannabis which they cannot unless they have a recommendation not a prescription a recommendation from a New York practitioner so it's it's kind of it's analogous to driver's licenses. Yeah. So it's uh -huh. if you if you already have a license or or have a pres uh, a recommendation or prescriptions in another jurisdiction, having that be applicable here. here in New York State as well. Like we don't require people to pass the New York State driver's exam to be able to drive here in a permitted way. So it, it it's like that. Can I speak to that a bit? Because I think I think that's I, I try to stay quiet. But when when I think there may be some <laughs> misconceptions, I like to point them out a little bit. So. We studied that a little bit, and I think you, it makes sense intuitively. You think, well, if somebody is a medical patient in another state, why would you make it difficult for them to access their medicine in the state of New York, right? It's just a no-brainer. The thing is, I mean, what we, what we believe is, uh, and, and no disrespect to our Western, uh, you know, brothers and sisters that created you know, the, 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 the roadmap to, to legalization, but... But the medical programs have evolved, as everything else has. And, and while New York's medical program was one of the most restrictive in the country, admittedly, there fortuitously resulted in there being a very rigorous medical program that doctors became very comfortable with and that uh, has really led to the development of some research and development in the, in the field of, of medical cannabis and the benefits of medical cannabis, something that we sorely need because the feds haven't allowed it to happen. 
And so we have a pretty rigorous medical program that we're looking to expand, but some of the or original states, like California, have very, very liberal uh, um, medical programs. And they weren't intended really as medical programs. They were first steps towards adult use programs. And so what happens is if, if you have the, the reciprocity you're talking about, what can happen is New York, New York State residents can just apply for a California um, you know, uh, web-based uh, uh, medical medical license or medical uh, card, and and then just function in New York as a medical patient with a California card, and that removes all our ability to understand what New York residents are getting medical marijuana for. So so we just so that that's just a caveat. I'm sure there's a workaround, but we have to be careful because it's counterintuitive at first. It sounds like it makes sense, but you have to be careful with that. Right. I mean there. I actually have not studied every reciprocity program, but I know that there are wide variances in how each state structures reciprocity in terms of what conditions are covered. So I think there is a way to make it work. And we're happy to look into that. It's just it's not that easy, and I, I don't know that I put it in statute as an automatic. As opposed to, like, regulation. Right, and right. you study it. And, like, Jersey. Jersey has a very similar medical programs, and they, people cross the border all the time, so that might make sense to start with something like that. Connecticut, Jersey, you know, so. Yeah. Just, well, so just I'm assuming that if you are moving from California to New York or know you're going to spend an extensive period of time in New York, say a student here, that you can go to a New York doctor and get... Um, approval from a New York doctor for whatever you may have also been receiving back when you lived in another state. And in fact, part of this expanded medical marijuana program is to both allow doctors more easily to simply be able um, to write squibs, not have to go through other exams or tests. We let MDs give you the most dangerous drug, drugs on the planet. So we think that we can trust them to determine that you can have medical marijuana if they make that judgment, and also expanding the categories of types of illnesses that medical marijuana can be used for in New York. So again, assuming people don't have to prove they were a resident here for a year before they go looking for help, I think we can probably address this just by, you know, coming as a resident of New York now and going. But I mean, that doesn't, that doesn't really help someone who's like a, a tourist. Probably Hopefully. not. Hopefully. Well, right. yes. Um, but, you know, w again, one of the other things we have to recognize about a medical program is that the, and, and this is where a lot of the Western states have really fallen short, is that the needs of some people in the medical program are so great. I mean, most adults don't need something like Rick Simpson oil. There are medical patients who need extracts like Rick Simpson oil. So... We, have to, we definitely have to keep that in mind, and I, I think it's incredibly important that we keep a robust medical program that serves people who are critically ill. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think uh, laws that limit uh, just the, the serving size of, uh, like, edibles, too, uh, same thing where there's medical patients that, you know, might need 1,000, 2,000 milligrams of, of THC, but there's laws that limit it to 10 milligrams in, in a lot of places. So, yes. so um, one, one other thing to ensuring the ongoing or the starting the success of our medical program, depending on how you look at it, um, is 
to, to start with the store, source and to, to start with the doctors and to educate the doctors more. And, you know, I'm not saying that New York State needs to mandate that everyone, every doctor takes an endocannabinoid class in order to um, graduate, but making that really available to doctors because I think that doctors are so entrenched in um, certain ways of seeing things, and if it hasn't necessarily been... Um, presented to them in their formative years of education, it's a whole new, that's a whole new undertaking. So making it available as a course of study to doctors, I think is going to be really clutch to continuing um, our cannabis, uh, medical cannabis program. Should that be legislated? Should we, I mean, should medical schools be required to be educating doctors? At, I mean, at some yes. point? Yes. Yes. I think so. Why not? I, I, I actually was just going to ask Axel about this. Like the, I, I believe it's the Department of Education yes. that regulates the professions. Yes. There needs to be, you know, the endocannabinoid system is so important. It's so crucial, and medical professionals need to know about it. This is aside from the two-hour or four-hour course that it's required to uh, become a uh, a registered practitioner. But it's 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 key going forward. Just to be clear, I. I advocate that they have to present it. I'm not saying that every, you know, as an elective, I'm not saying every doctor needs to take it, but it needs to be available for every doctor to engage in that course of study. So this is a new one for me, so I'm not going to say whether I automatically think that we can or should legislate a mandate for the medical schools, but something to think about. Yeah, this is, it's something that we've, we've actually looked at because Drug Policy Alliance works on a whole host of different issues around substance use. And this is something where we know that more education within the medical community on a variety of substances, especially as we're talking about the overdose crisis and some of the other um, medication-assisted treatment that would be available to people within that could be super helpful. Uh, but we also acknowledge that, that legislating it is probably not the, the most effective avenue for that, but rather you know, using what we know about um, human behavior and, and leverage points and rather making it so that there are incentives for people to avail themselves of this training and making sure that the training and that the information Information is available with very low barriers um, and, um, and affordable and accessible to people across the board so that there are incentives to participate and to avail themselves of that. So I will say that, so tonight I'm pretending to be a lawyer at the Bar Association. I'm not a lawyer. Um, but recently, <laughs> I don't pretend I'm one, um, I was on a panel with all these doctors around the issues of marijuana from the medical perspective, and there were two substance abuse specialist doctors who were saying that they are finding in their research and working as substance abuse specialists that they are patients that they can't prescribe medical marijuana to because they don't fit into any of the nice boxes we have for medical marijuana yet in New York State, but that their patients tell them that they are self-medicating with illegal cannabis and that they are weaning themselves off opioids very, very successfully. And so the doctor's saying, well, we can't say officially that we encourage you to buy illegal drugs because that would be a violation. And we can't prescribe you marijuana because you don't fit in any of the nice boxes for medical. Um, but we're busy taking notes on the findings as from our research perspective that because you've taken it upon yourself to go out and seem to find the right illegal cannabis mix for yourself, you are successfully 
getting off and staying off far more dangerous substances. And so they were saying how much they wanted to be able to do more serious research around this topic because they read reports coming in from other states that they also seem to anecdotally be having this out these outcomes when they broaden their medical marijuana access or their legal marijuana. Um, but they really feel as scientists and doctors, they're uncomfortable saying, we know there's a finding this happened, but they're telling me that this is what they're seeing every week with the patients they are working with, um, which I thought was fascinating because I actually thought I was going on the panel to have a bunch of doctors tell me how wrong I was <laughs> about supporting adult yeah. recreational use and that it's not researched enough and that it's not you know, FDA approved and it's not all these things they are taught you know, you should have before you start to support or encourage people to use. And they were like, could you just hurry up and get this done so that we can have more research available to us and we can start using this in ways that we really believe we can be successful in helping our patients with our outcomes. That's and right. And I think, you know, it's, it's definitely the case that cannabis is much more of an exit drug than anything else, right? We, we consistently hear these concerns about, you know, the, the gateway myth that's been debunked countless times. Um, but what we're seeing now is, you know, beyond the anecdotal data that the Senator was talking about, actual documentation of the ways in which people are able to, um, to reduce or stop using uh, substances that might be more problematic for them through the use of cannabis. And I'll just say, um, I don't know if Dr. Arnston was on that panel with you, but um, one of the, the chief um, medical voices at, um, at Montefiore and at Einstein School yes, of Medicine. one of the doctors. She's yes. incredible. <laughs> and she and her colleague did a study of, uh, of consumers at an adult use dispensary in Colorado and, and surveyed them on you know, the, the underlying reasons for their purchase that day. And they found that it was two thirds of the respondents said that they were actually using it to treat some sort of medical condition, um, but they did not feel comfortable for whatever reason accessing the state's medical marijuana program. And that's in a state that actually has a far more open um, and liberal mar medical marijuana program than we do here in New York. So when we think about as, as Senator Kruger was saying, the, the various reasons through which people want to access cannabis and some of the data, at least the preliminary data, around you know, how people are, are using it, um, even outside of the purview of the medical marijuana programs to actually address medical conditions that they have, um, it's really important for, um, for us to build that into our conversation here as well. Uh, I have one last question before we launch into uh, audience questions. Um, is marijuana going to be a gateway drug to legalizing other drugs? Like, is, uh, are we coming around to the idea that criminalizing drug use is not the way to do things? I hope so. I mean, you know, we, Denver, yeah, exactly. Thank, thank you, Dana. I mean, you know, when, when I got involved with this, I got involved in this through starting a normal chapter at my college, but I very quickly realized there was a lot more to this. Actually, one of the first summers after I got involved, I had a choice. Do I work for normal down in DC or do I work for this group called the Drug Policy Foundation, which is a predecessor organization to Drug Policy Alliance? And well, Drug Policy Foundation paid better. <laughs> no surprise there. Um, but they were also 
dealing with all kinds of drug policy issues. And, you know, this is a, a much broader thing. And as, as Dana mentioned, we see these results out of Denver. Um, we see what's going on in Colorado, where they're turning all drug possession uh, charges from felonies to misdemeanors. So there's a, there's a broader movement happening. It's, it's not happening fast enough, but I, I do think that this is a, a wedge to really reconsider um, all of our legal relationships with, with substances. And I just want to add to that, if you look at the way that um, the courts are starting to adapt and start to shift the way that they're thinking about criminalizing people with substance abuse issues, you're starting to see like drug courts pop over, like pop up across the country in the last like 15, 20 years. And so with the opioid epidemic and how it's impacting certain communities that are not historically communities of color, we're starting to hear a conversation that's bringing more empathy and people are thinking more about this as a health concern. And so we're hoping that as the national conversation is starting to rethink not just like how we treat drugs like marijuana, we're also rethinking the way we deal with criminalization. And so when these two things are starting to build at the same time, I'm hoping that we'll see in the next 20 years um, a total shift in the way we treat drugs. Yeah, and I think it really underscores the, the spectrum on which substance use happens, right? Like there, there are people across the multiplicity of substances that people have access to, both legal and illicit, that use those substances problematically or struggle with their relationship with that substance. There are people kind of in the middle, and then there are people who, who use a substance because they derive pleasure from it, right? Like not because of um, trying to balance for any negative aspect, but because it's enjoyable. Um, so I think broadening our notions of, of what use actually is and what it's derived from and building policies that are more responsive to that within our conversation around drugs writ large. And I think marijuana is a, is a way to talk about that because although there is a lot of stigma around the substance, it's less than with a lot of other substances that people use. And so it is, it is a way to open that conversation. Um, but within that, I think we have to be careful because there is a certain degree of marijuana exceptionalism where we talk about like, well, this is the case here, but it's not the case for you know, a, a variety of other substances. And I think we have to really break that apart. I mean, there was, there was actually a time in this country not too long ago when, when you could actually buy pharmaceutical grade heroin at the corner drugstore, right? And that, like our country didn't go, well, we can have debates about what was happening at that time, but, um, but it wasn't driven by substance use, right? And so I think, um, I think really broadening our conceptualization of how we got to this place and the reasons behind drug prohibition that were never really about the, the actual pharmacology of the substances that we were banning, but rather about other mechanisms of control and structural racism that were playing into that. So I think you know it's it's really an opportunity to be able to have data points and to have a reference point within modern times to talk through with people. Like, look, you know, as we're doing this, as Denver is um, is decriminalizing psilocybin mushrooms, that you know brings in some of the other potential uses and potential reasons why people are engaging with different substances. Um, but I don't think marijuana, in and of itself, is going to, to cause this shift unless we're really intentional about how we're framing the conversation and what we're bringing to the table. And as somebody in a legislature, I'll tell you that it's not that obvious that it's that easy. And the current reality of um, opioid overdoses and people dying at 
higher levels is triggering many of my colleagues to talk about we have to go back to increasing criminalization because it's all gotten out of hand with drugs and people are dying. And I lived long enough in the New York State Senate that I've gotten to be there when we ended the Rockefeller drug laws. Don't and, bring then it back. <laughs> and then I've watched people calling for us to, in, var in variations on, bring them back. Ugh. And I was like, what are you doing? And they're going, well, don't you understand there's a opioid crisis people are dying, and it's heroin now. I go, no, it was always heroin, just for the record. That's when we created <laughs> the Rockefeller drug laws. So what the product does doesn't actually impact whether we address the crisis the right way or whether we have the illusion that putting people in prison will actually solve the problem. I feel like we're right back where I was when I first got there before we solved the problem of the Rockefeller drug law. So I do not think there's an automatic path there, and there's an enormous amount of work we need to do to educate legislators about cause-effect. I mean, I've actually had to fight around this bill. Um, sorry, not, not this marijuana bill, but I'm just going to use an example. Colleagues who think we should put someone in prison for murder if they gave someone a drug that ended up causing the death or overdose. So, and the example I've raised in committee was, so one stupid high school kid steals mom's prescription drugs and shares them with his best buddy. The best buddy has an allergic reaction or takes too much and dies. And then you want the other high school kid to go to prison for murder for life because he gave his buddy the drugs. You So then we will have two mothers losing their children on the exact same day for the exact same reason. That's what you actually think is good criminal justice policy when it comes to people using drugs even stupidly and illegally, I, I don't understand. Um, and they're like, yes, we have to make it clear that there has to be extreme penalties if you're doing any of these things. And so uh, my gut is we have a long way to go um, to move I, the needle. I, 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 never, I never said it was going to be easy. No. <laughs> no. And, and I... I also want to highlight the fact that each of us in this room, we have access to our communities. We have access to the circle of influence within our own spaces. And we then have a duty to start to talk about these issues and educate people. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things that you just stated, the default that people like to go back to is criminalization. And criminalization, over and over again, never actually solves the social issues that cause right. people to use and or um, abuse substances. Mm -hmm. And so what are the underlying things within our society that is propelling people and moving people to have that type of response and that type of interaction with um, substances? And so 
you can throw someone in jail for as long as you want, but are you actually repairing the harm? Are you actually right. helping communities to be able to sustain in a way that's healthy? Um, and so we have a responsibility for those of us who have the opportunity to educate and have the availability to spend the evening with us, thank you, <laughs> um, to go back and share this information and try to push as many people to start to understand that um, criminalization is not the answer to the ills that we're dealing with in our society. All right, beautiful. So we have about 25 minutes left, and I got a bunch of good questions from the audience, so I'm going to throw these out to the panel. Um, so first one, uh, so big cannabis operators such as Canopy Growth and MedMen already have their footholds. How will New York State protect and nurture a viable industry for small businesses and social equity participants? Anyway. <laughs> how will they or how should they? Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll start off and then maybe you tag in. Okay, that right, sounds good. Perfect. Um, so I think, you know, with it's by, by being really intentional. Like this, this will not happen um, by, by fluke or by coincidence or just by like kind of wishing it into being. It's by actually being very clear and very intentional about the way we're setting up the framework for our regulated program here in New York. And that means centering and, you know, as we were saying before, anticipating what the very specific roadblocks are going to be for people who, who are not those players to be able to participate meaningfully in the space um, and at an ownership level, right, where they're, they are building wealth and retaining wealth in communities and then having the multiplier effect in the local economy from having that economic activity be centered in communities. And so that means, you know, as we were talking about before, having a huge variety of entry points into the industry. It means not barring people who have had prior criminal legal contact, and it means having incubator programs, having financing options available that don't require um, things that could be impacted by federal prohibition, but it means us being really bold and innovative here in New York in terms of how we're going to anticipate those issues and, um, and actually build the structure of our program to, um, to very specifically be geared toward the smaller players, the smaller entities. And I, I intend this also for people who are in the cultivation space, you know, making sure that we're centering family farmers who are cultivating and not just establishing another huge commodity crop. Mm -hmm. um, you know, how is this going to be a way for family-scale farmers who are really struggling right now with price collapses across a lot of different crops in New York be able to stay on their land? Um, and what that means from an ecological sustainability point as well. And that all requires us to be incredibly intentional and also to have the room to maneuver by not locking in every single detail within the statute, right? Like building in space where you know, the legislature sets the framework for what we want to have happen is really, really considerate um, in the way that Senator Kruger and Majority Leader People Stokes have been in crafting this bill and continuously updating it to reflect um, the lessons learned from other states and make it really be the gold standard of what regulation can look like in this country. Um, and in so doing, anticipate the potential roadblocks and solve for them now. Not wait and kick the can down the road and say, oh, well, this is really hard. Not sure how we're gonna do it. 
no, like that's not acceptable, right? And we and we know that, right? We can actually come up with the ways to do this um, because we know the larger players are already are already in the space. You know, they're already beating down the door, and they're the most well positioned because we're not operating in a vacuum here. We, you know, as we talked about before, like the general market dynamics are still at play. So how do we take that into account on the front end and make sure that we're positioning people who who have the deck most stacked against them to be able to participate? participate in a meaningful way in this industry as we get it off the ground. Um, I don't think I could say anything much better than that. But uh, I will add that we have to continue to, to call the actions of these larger actors into question. Um, and particularly when they say they support diversity and community reinvestment and equity initiatives, really start scratching the surface and see how they follow up. Um, also, it, with being really intentional, do not, <laughs> one of my suggestions is, please don't buy into a, any of the storylines that the registered organizations are um, impoverished or don't have the money. They can raise money like this. We have so much on the records of how they can you know, have another open call or list new uh, securities and raise money really easily. They have a vested interest in not seeing um, equity and community reinvestment happen in New York. Uh, so the transactional lawyer in me knows that you have to have, the, these are the nice to have, these are the even better to have, and these are the gating items. So to what Melissa said as far as we don't need to put everything in statute, but those items that would be considered gating items should be in fact in the statute, and then we can fill out that skeleton at a later date under regulation. And I think just one additional point, you know, to, to the matter of learning from other states, having real accountability and real teeth for, for the mechanism of, of actually evaluating the license holders and making sure that they're staying true to the standards that have been set. You know, we, we can do all of these different things in terms of setting up the framework, but if we don't actually have an accountability mechanism, you know, what's to actually incentivize entities to to hold true to what we're putting in place. And I think we're seeing that right now in Massachusetts, where despite a, a cap on the number of entities that any license holder is supposed to have, we know that there are uh, machinations and shenanigans happening behind the scenes, whereby the most capitalized players are actually leveraging control over other entities within the space in a way that completely violates the way that the the program was set up in Massachusetts. So I think, you know, again, like actually learning that lesson and, and instituting our program in such a way on the front end that accounts for that is really important. Good use of shenanigans. <laughs> I'm just a big fan of that word. <laughs> um, we got a couple questions about the pricing of medical marijuana in New York State. So um, I don't know this uh, personally, but apparently it's pretty expensive. Um, is there any thought on lowering that, getting that down? So one of the interesting things that, you know, when you get into the nooks and crannies of all this, um, everyone thinks that it was, you know, it was unique that we prohibited smoking and flour, that actually did not originate with New York. That was Minnesota, was the first state that did that. But to my knowledge, we are the only state that the government regulates the price, the per-dose price of medical cannabis. Um, the Gottfried Savino bill we were talking about before actually makes some changes to that in terms of uh, the ROs will no longer have to submit their pricing in advance. However, the 
uh, commissioner of health will still have the ability to modify after the fact pricing in order to, um, you know, in order to maintain access. Um, I, I think this is an artifact of a, a number of reasons. The fact that the program was set up where all the ROs had to be vertically integrated, you had mandatory vertical integration, you had no access to flower. I mean, when I hear about certified patients going to, uh, for example, like Sativa in downtown Brooklyn, and they're paying something like 60 to $70 for a 0.37 gram cartridge, I, I cringe. I just cringe. So we, we really need to make changes there. I can speak a little bit to that. Uh, you know, we're, we're very aware of the high price in the medical program, and we're not, we're not particular fans. When it comes to price setting and the authority to do that, at no point does the Department of Health increase the price and require it to be high. So that, that clause doesn't affect it. It's meant to be there in the event that, for example, if you switch over to an adult use market and then you decide that you're going to sell, you know, you're going to sell, you want to sell to adult use patients rather than medical patients and you want to increase the price of your medical wares, that the department can come in and actually keep prices low. So th there are ulterior motives to, to doing that. But look, there are 100,000 patients, 98,000 patients in the medical program. There are 10 ROs. That's about 10,000 patients each RO. Uh, of those 100,000 patients, the, you know, the majority, but not an enormous majority, don't, aren't, repeat, uh, aren't repeat buyers, probably because it's partly it's expensive. But that makes a very low volume of patients. So it's expensive you know, to produce um, some of these vape pens, and you don't have a lot of demand. You don't have a lot of economy of scale. Um, we, we fully expect that as the program grows, as it has elsewhere, that the prices are going to come down, and as adult use gets rolled out, you're going to have a lot more demand for your products, and you can have economies of scale on a per-unit basis so that the price will come down. Flour, there's a reason for not actually allowing flour in the medical program. You know, th there's actually a better reason not to do it than there is to do it. But because of the high prices and because so many people want to medicate with flour, then, you know, we're in favor of it and we propose doing it in our bill as well. But the reason you don't want to do it is that you can't get the same consistency in flour batch over batch. So a, a flour actually has different levels of THC, not only within the same plant, but within the same bud. Yes. Right. Yes. And, and so yes, what happens yes. when you grind it up or when you smoke a joint with it is that it's really hard to determine how much you're getting in terms of THC. And some of the patients, in fact, the average age of the patient in the medical marijuana program is between 55 and 65 years old. You have a lot of geriatric patients that are taking marijuana for pain, a lot of pain and arthritic purposes and whatnot. And so when, when you're taking a toke from a joint, it's actually really hard to modulate. And physicians don't like that because when they tell their patients or pharmacists, you know, go take this amount, they like to know that it's re replicable, right? That they know how much they're going to get and they don't like the patient going off and maybe taking a toke off a joint one time and feeling better and the next time you know, flying to the moon. So, so there's actually a reason for a reason for not allowing flour that's based in science. But for the obvious reasons, we all agree we need to get the prices down. So, so we're in favor of doing that. But it's a reluctant thing. So I just, it's all, you know, every issue has a little bit more complexity. But we're, we're in spirit, we're aligned for sure. But just wanted to raise that because it's it's something to consider as you. Uh, no, I I, I think that's I think that's actually a really excellent point, and people really don't understand the variability of the plant, which is, again, what makes it so fascinating. Illinois has gone on a completely different tack, and they are the first ones, to my mind, that are proposing taxing as a percentage of THC, which 
I always thought, uh, you know, a lot of people had said was the gold standard, but that the science wasn't there yet to to deal with the variability. So I'm really intrigued to see how that they're, you know, how they're going to roll that out. Yeah, that's a, from a public health standpoint, that's a really good idea because you have a lot of high concentration. And it models how we tax alcohol. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And they do it in categories. Well, excellent. I do think the science is building fast. It's like everything else in technology. So there are now ways to evaluate the content in different forms of, of cannabis in a much more effective, um, low-cost way than there was in the, were in the past. Right. So I think it does allow for more um, flexibility. I, I share his view. I'm not big on the flower or the smoking in the medical Oh, sorry. I'm not very big on using the flower or the smoking in medical marijuana because when I talk to the doctors who say they have concerns, and even the American Lung Association, their point is if you are in any way disabled, respiratory problems, immune deficiencies, inhaling burning product into your lungs is actually a really bad idea and that they highlight that they actually don't think we should allow smoking at all in any of our laws. Um, and so for me, this has also been a dilemma because, and you raised, I guess you raised it before, um, I believe strongly in the, indoor, in the indoor no smoking laws we have, and in any bill I ever put my name on, we will hold to that for cannabis as well as tobacco and other products. So no, um, no smoking or burning inside any location that the indoor uh, law applies to. In my law, it's also if your building has a no smoking policy inside, that's whatever you're smoking. Um, and frankly, many people find the odor of, of burning cannabis truly offensive. Um, and as neighbors, they shouldn't have to deal with it. I really do believe that as well. So it's a tricky question because you asked it before someone else do. In a densely populated city like ours where there's you know, not lots of places outside you can go to use product, um, how do you deal with this? And I'm not 100% sure about the right answers, but I know that I feel that the indoor smoking is a problem, that using a smoked product for a medical purpose is a problem, um, and in fact, some of the edibles we would not allow in our law either because we don't want anybody in the industries um, to be trying to target and children using these products. So I'm not interested in marketing to children that cannabis gummy bears are wonderful. So we don't allow those either. So there's lots of issues to be dealt with. And, and that's, I mean, that's really why we need lounges. Right. I mean, we need places where people can actually go and consume marijuana, because if you do live in a place where you're not allowed to smoke and you're going to get arrested if you smoke outside, you're going to get hassled by the cops. Where do you go? Mm -hmm. I think exactly that's where the 
the on-site consumption or social consumption really plays in, where you can have the proper ventilation and also you can address some of the concerns around uh, around the nuisance complaints of odor and things of that nature, where you know people do then have a designated place to go that's properly ventilated, that is compliant uh, with the Indoor Health Act, and also serves that purpose. Um, you know, we also have to be clear that for we don't want to create a two-tier system yet again, um, because we have to be mindful that um, at at the federal level, there's now a ban on smoking of any sort in public housing, mm. um, and it can be grounds for ultimate eviction from public housing as well. And so, you know, making sure that we're not legalizing a substance only to say that you know public housing residents in New York City, which is the largest concentration of public housing in the country, are banned from effectively availing themselves of this entire legal product. Can I throw one last thing in? Because this is a really interesting. We, we put social consumption sites in our bill as well, so we're in favor. But it's actually surprisingly difficult to be to be compliant with the Clean Indoor Air Act. In fact, you can't be compliant with the Indoor Air Act with any smoking and, and ventilation. Actually, doesn't meet the requirements because there are no requirements for indoor combustion. So if anybody has ideas, you know, this is a niche market in terms of, uh, you know, you could make a lot of money if you can come up with a way that you can actually clear smoke from a room in a way that's not toxic for uh, other people that are sharing that room. And if not, we all have to put our heads together and figure that out because, you know, I'll give you an example. In public health, again, I, I work in the public health field. There are casinos that want to have uh, outdoor smoking. And so, you know, originally it was a patio and you'd be able to smoke outdoor and that was okay because that's outside. And then they put a roof on the patio and then that's okay because it's still outside. And then they put a wall on one side. Well, I guess there's three walls that are missing, so that's okay. And then <laughs> there's another wall, so there are two walls that are missing and the room's about, you know, 30, 40 feet long. And, and but all, all joking aside, the department struggles with trying to understand uh, how to measure and, and the, um, the engineers that work on air purification systems haven't been able to establish uh, the ability to recycle air at a sufficiently high speed to be able to clear all the toxins from cigarette and the harm to other people. So there, there, is, a, there is a practical kind of structural uh, impediment to social consumption sites that we're all going to have to face in the near future. So mm. if anybody has any leads on that, we would gladly uh, look at those. What, what's, uh, what system is there in the state for, like, cigar bars? Is there, is there anywhere that, you know, is there any establishments now that allows any kind of smoking? Or, yeah, like, are those models to look at? or? They're grandfathered from, there are from a few prior grandfathered to the in from pre yeah. the, but yeah. they don't try to. You go in at your own risk. They don't try and purify the air. Well, they might, but they don't do it successfully, according right. to what I'm told. Right, it's a problem. And actually, for people who are living in public housing, it's not even the question of smoking, having it at all. Right. Our laws wouldn't protect you from being evicted because federal law doesn't allow this, and this is federal housing. So. The good news, though, is that it does appear in mature markets that the share of the market that's, des that's you know, flour, people are just smoking less joints. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So they're moving to vapes. Yep. So, I mean, that's a slight silver lining, I guess. Yeah, there's definitely a, a harm reduction move as people have more products available to them that are consistent, that they know what they're getting and are able to access those on the market. Um, but also in terms of the public housing in New York City, I mean, we've, we've worked really closely with the New York City Council to pass through a, a whole host of legislation related to cannabis, partially to address collateral consequences that people are already facing, and in part to establish New York City's view on what this should look like um, moving forward 
forward and really grounding this in equity and racial justice. Um, but one of those bills was actually to make sure that cannabis-related offenses would no longer be grounds for eviction from public housing, that there would be other mechanisms to navigate that for people. So I think, you know, in as much as you're right, that we you know, obviously need to work up at the various levels of government um, that do preempt that. We also are building in, you know, from the bottom up as many protections as we can in terms of dealing with, um, you know, an entity like NYCHA that is actually controlled administratively at the city level. So, you know, with regard to the marijuana justice package that we worked on with the council, you know, really the, the bottom line message there was that we don't have to wait for Albany in order to address some of the things that are specifically within the council's purview right here, right now. Beautiful. All right, so we only have about six or seven minutes left. We are going to wrap up talking about CBD. Uh, so the question is, given CBD's popularity and the recent decision to ban it as a food additive, how can the health department be expected to police the cannabis industry when there are restaurants selling CBD edibles and colorfully wrapped vans on the streets of New York selling brownies? How do you regulate CBD? I mean, CBD is just a, it's a conundrum wrapped in a riddle inside an enigma. Like Seinfeld, but it really is. I mean, look, um, how are they expected to police? I mean, they, they police the restaurants relentlessly and and if they decide that they're going to ban CBD in food uh, in restaurants then they'll be able to impose that ban and it will be effective and people will stop doing it. Uh, the question is how do we feel about that whether that's the right public policy. I, I think our view is that in in the in the short term it is. Uh, I think we need to figure out a dosing protocol for CBD and understand what it is that we uh, deem acceptable in what um, method of administration. So, you know, we currently allow CBD in dietary supplements, and the idea is if you have uh, a one-ounce bottle with some oil and it says suggested use is 10 milligrams or 20 milligrams, people know what they're doing when they're taking it. They understand they're adding it to the food themselves. They understand what they're doing. The idea that you would have it infused in your chicken when you go to the restaurant and you're not entirely sure where the CBD comes from and how much the, the cook decided you know, to feed you that particular evening or whether it's homogeneously spread across the entire chicken um, is, is cause for concern from a public health standpoint. Uh, you know, chicken necks absorb a lot of CBD, supposedly. But, um, yeah, that's all you will. Exactly. So I think, I think, the, I think the, the state's preference is to start with dietary supplements and then move slowly into like waters and juices and stuff like that and then eventually into packaged goods like foods and edibles and then, event, and then down the road eventually if we get there to food. But, but the real lead right now is the FDA on this. Yeah. Uh, you know, the FDA has said that they're going to be looking at dosage parameters. So uh, the, the outgoing uh, FDA commissioner Gottlieb said maybe we should look at this sort of like fish oil. Uh, with, which would have three swim lanes. You would have a highly concentrated form of CBD at really high levels, which would be a drug. You'd have something intermediary, which would be a dietary supplement, and then something which is uh, really on the lower level at some negligible rate, which could be incorporated in the food supplement. That makes and, a lot of sense. Yeah, it does make a lot of sense. The big debate, the big fight will be now at what level you set it, right? So, so a lot of the hemp, uh, hempers and a lot of the dietary supplement industry would like to see that level really high, and then there are pharmaceutical companies that would like to see that level uh, really low. And so that, that's going to be a big fight, but we expect that, uh, that there's going to be some movement at the federal level to get the FDA to weigh in on that. It's going to be something to watch. 
But the whole cannabinoid uh, world is fascinating. I mean, if you think about this, as of December 2018, every cannabinoid in the cannabinoid plant, except for, you know, the, the, the stepbrother, uh, THC, um, has <laughs> been, that's right, has been, has been legalized. So you can, you can grow it, you can extract it, you can concentrate it, CBG, CBN, CBV, and, um, and the only thing you can't do is, is, is THC. So we're in a brave new world, and, and that's a, un, uh, you know, should be better regulated, and I think Senator Kruger and I both agree, uh, and I'm hopeful, and I've heard that your new bill will include a hemp section. And that's not to overregulate. It's not we're not in the business to put people out of business. We're in the business of just having a standard. So GMP, you know, see GMP facilities and proper labeling so people know what they're doing and proper dosing. So so it's really we're we're very bullish on this market. We really want to encourage New York growers, uh, but we just want to do it right to protect people. And I'll add, we want to make sure that the manufacturing process is not adding toxics to whatever you're taking because while I think that we all agree that we're not necessarily concerned about the health negative consequences of the use of CBD. Um, we need to focus on dosage, as Axel just described. Um, but if whoever's producing it is using butane or other dangerous chemicals um, to separate the hemp from the oil and their toxic levels building up in their product. I know I want to know that before I'm putting it in my food or my drinks or even putting it under my tongue at night before I go to bed. And right now that we have no standards or evaluation of that, and I think that that is also crucial for New York State to make sure we are doing what we should be doing to protect citizens. Beautiful. All right. Well, uh, that's all the time we have. So, um, oh, yep. Can I say one thing? I think this is this has been a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate being um, on this panel with such amazing voices and people. Um, but I'll also say we we have twenty days to zero session to, session, session days, days, right. session days to actually pass marijuana legalization in New York. I'll repeat that. We have 20 days when legislators are in Albany for them to consider the bill that Senator Kruger and Majority Leader People Stokes have introduced to actually make this a reality. Everything we're talking about is amazing, and we want it to be real and true, and that's going to take every single person in this audience and every single person listening and everyone you know taking action right now. This is not an inevitability. This is not going to happen without you being part of making it so. Leaders need to feel that this is urgent, that, this is, that it would be unacceptable to not legalize marijuana in New York this session. And right now, they're not necessarily feeling that. So what I need everybody to do is to grab one of these from the table as you're leaving, or if you're listening online, go to smart-ny.com and raise your voice. People are hearing a lot from the opposition. They're hearing a lot of things right now. Um, and they're also operating in this space where they feel like this isn't an urgent priority. And we need to make it very clear that the status quo is unacceptable, that we know on every single level that this, we're wasting resources, we're not availing ourselves of a huge economic driver, and we also have the racial and economic justice huge aspects to what this can be in New York State that we cannot, cannot get to June 19th and not do this. 
And we need to make that really clear to leaderships at the three levels of government in New York State. Please, <laughs> if you care about this issue, um, if, you, if you have some sort of connection at any level, um, plug in. There are a lot of different ways to connect. Uh, at the very, very least, contact your state representative. You can do so with one click from our website. Um, you can come to Albany and speak with them directly. You can talk to people in your community, as Anne was saying earlier. This is really an all-hands-on-deck moment. Like I, I know I sound a little desperate. I'm sending up the flare. <laughs> we need you, because I think there's been a lot of narrative around this. There's been a lot of conversation and so much momentum, which is great. Like We have brought ourselves to this moment of being right on the cusp of doing it, and we have to push it over the finish line. And it won't happen without every single person in this room and everyone who cares about legalization taking action right now. So thank you for doing that preemptively. Sorry? Huh? Woo! <laughs> we haven't legalized sports betting in New York yet, so I can't answer that question. Oh, <laughs> good answer, good answer. Exactly. Um, also, just very quickly to follow up on what Melissa said, uh, we're planning two lobby days, major lobby days, one on May 29th um, on the web, uh, May 29th and June 13th. The links are already up for buses from all over the state for May 29th, um, and please, if you can, come join us on those two days. June 13th, Fred, May 29th and June 13th. Beautiful. Grab, grab right. a card. Grab a card. So I think that about does it. Uh, thank you to our awesome panelists. Thank you to the New York Bar Association. Thank you for coming. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Thank you.